Welcome to season three, episode three of the Healthcare Reimagined podcast. As we come out of Memorial Day weekend, it was an honor to speak this morning with a veteran who spent over a decade serving our country as a physician. Laura Purdy is a board certified family medicine physician who spent 14 years as an officer in the U.S. Army. Laura started working in telemedicine in 2016 as a full-time physician and became medical director of MD Live. After MD Live, Laura became one of the regional medical directors of Hims and Hers and has now worked for dozens of virtual healthcare companies across the industry, in addition to her work consulting for early stage telehealth startups in the US and the UK. Laura has co-founded two telehealth companies and is now lobbying at the federal level to influence change that increases access to care and reduces disparities in telehealth. Laura, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So as a veteran myself, albeit of a different military, I know that my service has had a profound impact on my life. What inspired you to join the military in the first place? I think a lot of things inspired me to join the military. I accessed in 2005. And if you remember back to those days, the war was young and there was a hugely prevalent sense of patriotism in the U.S. at that time, yellow ribbons everywhere, you know, people USA, USA. And and we were inundated with news footage of the war. And so when I think back to that time, you know, why did I join? It felt like the right thing to do. I had a lot of friends that were serving and I was just living in a time where that's what a lot of people were doing. I wanted to be a part of what was going on. I wanted to help. And I knew going into healthcare, I actually, I really wanted to be a part of the military system and the government system because I did not personally want to be influenced by things like making more money off of patients or having to be beholden to the insurance companies. And so it felt like joining the military was a good way to be more altruistic as a physician, but also contribute to what was going on in our country with the war at that time. You know, it's one thing to join. It's quite another to stay in for 14 years. So those are amazing motivations for joining. But what kept you in that long? Well, I didn't have a choice. Um, that was the length <laughs> of my contract. Right? Full transparency. Yeah. I, I got out the day my contract was over. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is the Army in 2005 is not the Army in 2021 when I got out, which was just last year. When I joined, we were told, we just want you to be a doctor, like focus on your medical skills, physician first, right? Was the mentality in 2005, because there was a war, the number of casualties and injuries far outweighed the system's ability to care for them. Right. And at that time, they were like, yeah, we're going to teach you the soldier skills. We're going to make sure you know how to handle yourself as a soldier, but your job is to be a doctor, right? Right. And by the time I got out, they were like, yeah, we don't care if you're a doctor, you're a soldier, and we allow you to be a doctor. So I stayed in because my contract lasted that long. But the reason why I didn't stay in is because the sentiment and the motivations that brought me in had really changed. Yeah, that's totally fair. And so, you know, spending those 14 years on the healthcare side of the military, at least part of which allowed you to be solely focused on, as you said, being a doctor. Were there any takeaways from that experience that you found have have kind of proved useful as you've now entered the civilian sector? 
Oh, more than I could possibly count. Yeah. I, you know, it's really interesting because it's kind of like going through high school and learning math, right? And you think, oh, I'm never going to use any of this. That's not true. The leadership experience, the management experience, because the delivery of healthcare doesn't change. Medicine is medicine is medicine. Mm -hmm. And the standard of care is the same, no matter where you're practicing it. But the management skills, the leadership skills, operational skills, and honestly, even the wartime combat medic training type of skills, I have used every bit of that in the civilian side on a daily basis. And I can't place a value. It's truly invaluable. The experience that I had in the mentors that I had in the military. Something that you touched on briefly just now, I know that medics in the military have higher licensure, I'm not talking about doctors now, but as a volunteer EMT in New York city, obviously I'm five minutes from any hospital, but I see in rural areas where EMTs are sometimes the only form of care that a patient could hope for in an hour after an incident. Are there takeaways from the military's training of medics and EMTs to hire, I should say, to handle higher acuity patients that could be helpful in addressing the primary care shortage that we're seeing in this country? You're tugging on my heartstrings here because the most fun and the most rewarding thing that I did in the military that I had the honor to be able to do was my first job out of residency. I was the battalion surgeon, which is, I'm not a surgeon, but that's what they call it. Mm. That's the name of the doctor for a military unit. And I had around 30 medics that were under me and they were special operations, combat medics, and they are so highly trained. Their skill set, it would shock you. I mean, they do chest tubes, they do cricothyroidotomies, they do tourniquets, they can handle eviscerations, they can intubate, they can safely administer sedatives and narcotics in the field because they have to. Right. They are placed in a position by virtue of their job that they have to be proficient at that. And they're so capable and they're so competent. And I truly would have had complete and total confidence in them even taking care of me. If I went over there and I got injured, I know they would take the best, the absolute best care of me. And so I do think that here in the U S and actually one of the projects that I'm working on right now with a, with a client, a consulting client that I have is an executive protection agency, and they are trying to get permission for their EMTs. And they're all in our EMTs to be able to just do things like tourniquets. If somebody that they're providing security for gets shot, right. And it feels like an insurmountable ask here in the U S on state side where things are relatively peaceful to get these guys permission to even do things like IVs right? It's crazy. It it just blows my mind because I know that if we would, as a country would allow an increased scope for these folks, we really would make some big strides towards closing the care gap. One of the things that pops into my head hearing you talk about this is the story of the professor who asks his students one day, if any of you had seen a, a child drowning in a bog on the way over, is there anyone here who wouldn't have helped because you were afraid to ruin your 50 or hundred dollars shoes? And of course, no one raises their hand and everyone says, of course we would help. And he says, okay, well for a hundred bucks right now, you know, you can save a hundred children's lives in Africa, right? With malaria pills. Why don't you do it? 
right? And it's because it's not right in front of your face, right? And, and on the battlefield, casualties happen in real time. They happen quickly. But the fact is, we are causing the slow and painful death of millions of people in this country as a result of the licensure limitations, as a result of lack of proper number of clinicians that we need to treat, whether it's behavioral health, whether it's primary care. And if we treated this more like the emergency that it is, looking forward at the shortages that we're going to have in this country, I do wonder if the government would be quicker to react as it relates to licensure limitations, the limits of telehealth across state lines, for instance, which I'm sure is a passion point for you. What could we be doing in the short run to make maximal gains as it relates to access to care? Oh, wow. I mean, that is a can of worms. <laughs> you just really, how do you answer that question, right? But the first thing that came to my mind as you were unfolding that question is that I really just want to say it, we need to get over ourselves. As an industry, we really need to get over ourselves and check our arrogance at the door because I am in a couple of advocacy groups just as an observer, because that's how I know what's going on in the industry. And that's how I know what's going on with my peers. But we need to check our arrogance at the door. The fact of the matter is that this archaic notion and belief that the only people who are capable of delivering healthcare and doing it safely and doing it well is physicians is just wrong. There are good physicians and there are bad physicians. There are criminal physicians, right? <laughs> there are reckless physicians. I spend a lot of time like reading the board actions for different state medical boards to see what kind of things people truly get in trouble for. And there's some pretty nasty things going on out there. And this notion that NPs, PAs, physical therapists, even naturopathic doctors in some instances, therapists, medics, EMTs, to minimize and belittle the potential contributions that those people could have to resolving some of these epidemic healthcare issues in our country, to minimize what they can do and to not allow them to come alongside us in the practice of medicine. We're not helping our own cause at all. It's a great point. Ego is the enemy. There's a military writer, I guess, personality at this point named Jocko. I don't know if you've ever come across him, but he has this great book called Extreme Ownership. Jocko's book has a chapter on ego where he basically talks about as a commander in the military, ego will get you killed, right? At a certain point, you have to trust the people under you, which in your case, I guess, is, is lower licensed clinicians to be able to deliver the care that you've trained them to deliver. When you think about those 30 medics that you had under you, if you tried to have a hand in every single encounter, it's impossible. You can't give medical direction when you're miles away and you can't see the reality on the ground. So you have to trust the people that are there to deliver the best care that they can. I might even say like, let's be a part of the solution right now. Let's not call them lower licensed clinicians. Let's call them differently licensed clinicians, mm -hmm. right? Because who's to say that one is better or one is worse. Like if I try to go help somebody with physical therapy, I'm going to be terrible at that, right? I'm going <laughs> right. to be so bad at that right? They're differently licensed clinicians, but we all have the same ultimate goal in mind. And if we can't learn how to delegate, if we can't learn how to share responsibility, if we can't learn how to attack the problem together, like why can't we look at this and assume the answer is yes, we can. And yes, we will. And then work on the solution to be able to do that safely and responsibly as a team. I love that reframe. And I will probably adopt that going forward instead of lower licensure. I like that a lot. 
pivoting a little bit, because I know you're one of your areas of expertise is telemedicine. You know, this pandemic has wreaked havoc on the clinician community in terms of burnout. And I'm sure in the military, you've obviously seen folks who've been through some difficult stuff who burn out. So there was an article I came across in healthcare IT before the weekend asking if telemedicine was the answer to physician burnout and staffing shortages. So I'm curious to get your take on if you think telemedicine can help address burnout, but do so without undermining the need for clinicians to physically see patients. There there kind of feels like a give and take between these two extremes. So the answer is yes. The fact of the matter is there are a lot of instances where clinicians don't really need to see a patient, but that's not any different than in any other industry. There's instances where I love the bank analogy, right? You don't need to go see a bank teller every time you need to make a financial transaction. You don't need to see a doctor every time you need to engage in a healthcare problem with a healthcare solution. You don't have to see a teacher every time you need to be taught something, right? I mean, we could go on and on and on and on, right? We do every other industry in our society with a component of virtual and healthcare is the same way. After working in virtual health for so long, brick and mortar healthcare, I'm going to use a strong word, disgusts me. It's abhorrent and it's distasteful the way that patients are like the system doesn't set patients up for success because there's not enough resources. The system doesn't set doctors up for success. They're run ragged. They're treated like animals and forced to do extreme work hours and exhaustion and workload and documentation. The brick and mortar healthcare system right now is so far broken that I don't know how we could ever enact reform on it successfully because it's run by big healthcare institutions with deep pockets. And we are all a slave to how they decide to operate. So what telemedicine has done is, is it's begun a revolution and it's provided people a way out, patients and doctors to say, you don't have to be under the thumb of big hospital and big insurance. Let's find a way to do healthcare and just get it done. And so I think it's been incredible to be a part of. And so what does the government need to do to allow telehealth practices to thrive? Obviously, there have been some changes during the pandemic, but what needs to stay in place and what needs to be added to the present laws to to help us do even better? They're already doing it. They are already doing it. Over the last few years, I have been just terrified. I've been terrified that I would become a casualty of progress. And what I mean by that is by me willing to step out and boldly say, we're going to do this. We're going to do it safely. And we're going to start to push the envelope a little bit so that we encourage change with the law. It's really scary to do that because I know that at any given time, some regulatory body somewhere might try to make an example out of me and prove a point, right? But the Federation of State Medical Boards, which doesn't really have governing authority, but more like advisory capacity, within the last couple of months, so this year, put out a phenomenal, a phenomenal policy document on their recommendations for best practice of telemedicine. And I can feel that things are changing, that the regulatory bodies are starting to understand that not only is this not going away, but that it's good and that we need to lean into it. And we need to stop assuming that the answer is no, we can't do this or no, we shouldn't do this or no, that's not 
how you establish a doctor-patient relationship. How dare they? I mean, I know they have the right to do it because they are the ones who give me permission to have a medical license and use it. But, you know, how dare they define in this day and age how a relationship between people is formed? Because we do that in a lot of ways. So we really need the governments to open their eyes and stop being so arrogant and stop being so stubborn and look around, specifically Idaho, West Virginia, Washington, D.C. Those are some of the last few holdouts while the entire rest of the country has moved their policy forward. So shifting away a little bit from the policy side to the realm of business and startups, what are telehealth startups that you're working with doing to help increase adoption in the space? Marketing is a huge part of it, right? Because Americans and marketing is a little outside of my realm. So I'll try to speak as accurately as I can. But when the average free range American sees things that they connect with, so they see real people providing real testimonies and they see it on social media, that is when they learn how to trust and when they learn how to do and when they learn how to adopt. And so telehealth companies and telehealth startups are really digging into the influencer and the social media and all the marketing aspects to show Americans, this is safe. This is good. This is helpful. We can do this and you're not going to be scammed, right? A lot of people are afraid that telehealth is a scam. They're not going to be taken advantage of. We're seeing a lot of gains in adoption through those organic marketing efforts that a lot of the startups are doing. So just to call out the elephant in the room, right? Like all things in healthcare, there are great things that new innovations and new laws bring about. And then there is the double-edged sword of bad people will always try to take advantage. So I think about like 31-day mortality for cardiac surgeons who are penalized on 30-day mortality, right? If if anyone was able to get a hold of the 31-day mortality data, I'm sure it would be astonishing, right? And it's because the system incentivizes that number. The hospital kind of holds the physician to it or evaluates them based on it. And so it leads to unsavory practices. You know, I remember during COVID, there was a time where you could get a test online or something, but you had to have a consult with a doctor. And I knew that was so that they could bill, right? And it was a five-minute conversation in which nothing was discussed. How do you prevent telehealth from falling into the same traps? It happens. If you read the news, you'll see, you know, just look around online, you'll see doctors taking advantage of the system, but that happens in the real world too. Like somebody down the road from me was just arrested for prescribing like 179,000 plus prescription pills of opiates in a brick and mortar, right? So it happens in the real world, but it also happens virtually. What I tell people is we have more visibility into what people are doing through virtual platforms, because all virtual platforms have audit trails and Mm. you have tracking. And a lot of times if it's recorded, you can hear everything, you can see everything, you can track everything. And so much less is a secret. But once you're in a clinic, a doctor and a patient go behind a closed door, I don't really know what's said in there. And I don't really know what's done. And all I can see is what shows up in the medical record. And I have to presume that that's true. It's a great point. Added transparency always helps, but the design of the system also has to be incentivizing proper behavior. Let's talk about what you're doing now. 
I know you started recently with a company called OpenLoop. Can you tell me a bit about what it does and how you got involved? One of the things that I will do is I actively seek out startups, earlier stage startups, who appear to need some senior advisement. And so OpenLoop is one of the companies that a couple of years ago, I reached out to them in more of a you know contracting and consulting capacity and just offered up advice. Truly, they you know didn't have a senior physician on their executive team. And over the course of a couple of years, the relationship evolved. They just took their Series A investment. And so they invited me to be their chief medical officer. Graciously and humbly accepted that. But they're really a phenomenal company that their widget is full stack telemedicine operations from staffing to execution to revenue cycle management and reimbursement. They provide all of the, we, I'll say we, (laughs) kind of a new position. We provide all of that to the telehealth clients. It's a lot of fun and challenging, but I love it. So two questions to kind of close us off. The first is maybe a little easier. What does the future of health look like? If we look into our crystal ball and look five to 10 years into the future, if things are going well, how do things look different than they do today? Our future looks very bright because technology is continuing to be invented. Systems and processes are continuing to be innovated. And since we are largely out from underneath the heavy hand of big hospitals and insurance companies, we have the freedom to innovate quickly. And as the technology capabilities grow, so will our ability to deliver telehealth. I think we're going to see so much more blend and integration between the hospital or the clinic and the virtual realm. I think those two are going to be so densely intertwined that we will fluidly be able to move back and forth between them. And we'll have such a more intricate ability to know and monitor our patients with the use of technology and even deliver care. I think that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe even sooner than that, we won't think about telemedicine and brick and mortar medicine being two separate distinct industries. I think it will be a part of one larger blended concept of delivery of care in the U.S. You reminded me of of something I heard at a conference, must've been 2016, Dr. Klaskow, who was still then the president of Jefferson was asked I think in the New York Times article, how will you know that you're succeeding? And he said, if someone's walking around downtown Philadelphia in five years or 10 years, someone asks them where Jefferson Hospital is, and that person can't tell them, I'll have done my job. The idea being that he wants to push the transition away from hospital into the outpatient clinic, into the telehealth realm. And I think that has a popularly held position today than it was in 2016. But at the time for an executive who's basically whose sole revenue was deriving from the hospital to say that was a pretty big deal. So I thought that was pretty cool and and kind of rings true with what you were describing as what a potential future could look like here. The last question I want to ask you, which I've stolen from Zev Neuwirth's podcast is if you had a minute with the present administration to sit them down and, and tell them about some of the changes that they could make to improve American healthcare, what suggestions would you have? You know what I would do if I were in that situation? Because I believe that the telehealth and vir- a blended virtual care, digital health, whatever you want to call it, 
has an ability to contribute to solving any, any, any healthcare problem that we have in the US right now. So I would flip that question around and I would say, why don't you guys tell me what you are most concerned about? And I will tell you how telehealth can help you solve that problem. That is such a great answer because in, I don't know how many episodes I've done of this now, 20 or 30, no one has ever turned that into a question. And I think it's a indication of the empathetic leadership and the lack of ego that you've come to develop through working in the military and kind of brings us right back to where we started, which is that ego is the enemy. If we were willing to see that we have the talent around us to provide Americans with the care that they need, we would all be so much better off. So thank you for your humility. Thank you for your military service. And thank you for taking the time to to speak with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun and and an honor. And uh, I'm so grateful. Thank you.